0: Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, and we're going to take the first two verses. All who have ears to hear the word of the Lord, let him hear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Amen. Father, again, we would commit this time to you knowing that this is your word, your holy, inerrant, inspired word. And Father, it is only through the enlightening of your Spirit in our hearts that we can hear with spiritual hearing, and understand, and further be changed by your truth. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless your people this morning, draw us near, comfort your people, Lord. We want your honor more than all things. Help us in this, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we are officially getting into a new chapter and really one of the favorite chapters in all of Scripture for many believers. Romans chapter 8. The theme of this chapter, if you wanted to boil it down, is the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit and His application of this wonderful redemption That God has purchased for his people in their justification, in their sanctification, and ultimately their glorification. This chapter answers the big question that Paul left us with at the end of chapter 7 Who will deliver me from this body of death? That question is answered in chapter 8 really in two parts, both by an understanding of how the Spirit applies the salvation of God in our sanctification and in our glorification. Salvation is always of the Lord, and God, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in salvation. The Father has planned salvation from eternity before there was time The Son, in His obedience to the Father, carried out the Father's perfect plan of redemption and executed it Himself. And the Spirit of God applies the work that God has both planned and executed perfectly to the hearts of His people in all places and at all times. And because God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who applies salvation to His people, If there were one word to describe this chapter from the perspective of the recipients of God's marvelous salvation, it would be this, super invincibility, super invincibility. Romans chapter 8 verse 37 sums that up. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not just conquerors, not just invincible, but more than conquerors super invincible, such that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If he has set his love upon you, you will be brought to salvation in all those senses that we talked about justification, sanctification, and final glorification to the glory of God. Nothing will separate you from His love and His act of love toward you in redemption. This is a wonderful chapter of comfort for the people of God. And it's a chapter that we are to come back to time and time again because as we have been learning, Christians are the ones who know something of their sinfulness. Christians are the ones who are bothered by their sinfulness. Christians are the ones who need comfort because of their sin, and the Lord has provided it for us. The way this chapter is laid out, generally speaking, is this. The first 30 verses is an expansion of what we learned in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. That section which began with, Therefore, there is now, excuse me, having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand firm and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And he goes on to enumerate the what we call the purse of blessings that come comes to the one who is justified. The one who is justified is always blessed with every purse of blessings that pertains to God's salvation. And so chapter 8 is going to expand for us what we learned in chapter 5 and take us to new heights. Within those first 30 verses of chapter 8, if you were to divide the first 16 verses, that would be the Spirit's role in our sanctification. How will the Lord deliver us? He will sanctify us in this life from our sin, separate us more and more from our sin. And then in verses 17 through 25, you could say we have the Spirit's role in our glorification, the final redemption that is yet to come, that is prepared for every child of God, whom, which God will reveal in His time. A glorification of the body, sinful flesh being set aside, and all of us being given new bodies, glorified bodies that are patterned after the likeness of the glorified Lord Jesus. In verses 26 and 27, we have a description of the Spirit's help in our weakness, our weakness in this life. He is an ever-present need, excuse me, an ever-present help for our need. And then in verses 28 through 30, we have God's grand purposes. His grand purposes in all of redemption. And what we call the golden chain of salvation. What God has purposed in terms of salvation from eternity, He carries out in space and time and back into eternity again in the glorification of His saints. And then as we just saw in verse 37, in that section, the last portion of Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, we have the super invincibility of the child of God because of God's own work and protection for us. So, let's get into this together. I'm excited to do this with you. The outline for today is really three points, and it's all relating to this theme of comfort. Comfort is the theme for today and for God's people really every day. The outline is this, first, the nature of the comfort. What is the nature of this comfort that God has for his people Secondly, the recipients of the comfort. To whom does this comfort come? Who can claim this comfort as their own? And thirdly, the character of the comforted. How do you know that you're one who is comforted? First, the nature of the comfort. The nature of the comfort. And this is really where we're going to spend our time today. Verse 1. There's a lot here. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, coming off of chapter 7, where we just were with wretched man theology, this may seem like a bit of a strange transition. We've been talking about, really, the law and what the Christian's new relationship to the law is in Christ that the law no longer condemns him. He is effectively dead to the law in that sense. The law has no power to condemn him anymore because of what Christ has done, paying for our sins at Calvary. Secondly, we saw that the law has a wonderful, good function, that God has purposed to be the revealer of sin, the sinful heart in man. The law of God exposes the sin of our hearts so that we see our condition as God sees us. And when we do that, we mourn over our sin. We we understand something of this wretchedness that Paul describes at the end of chapter 7. And then thirdly, we saw that the law can't deliver us from sin. Look at Romans chapter 7 verse 14 for we know that the law is spiritual. He had said in verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment holy, just and good. But back in 14, he says, but I am carnal Sold under sin. The law has no power to restrain sin, and it has no power to remove sin from my flesh. So, why is Paul making this point here, that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, here's what we have to remember as we read this letter as a whole, and that can be difficult as we go through this week by week, up close and personal as we are. But just backing out again, zooming out, Paul's theme in Romans is justification. Justification by faith alone and Christ alone, all enabled by grace alone. And so, what Paul has done, starting in chapter 3, verse 20... Where he said, therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He introduces the theme of justification. And he's been talking about justification from chapter 3 verse 20 all the way to the end of chapter 5. And then in chapter 6 and chapter 7 we have a bit of a pause. In chapter 6 Paul is pausing his discussion of justification to deal with some issues that he anticipates are going to be raised from his opponents, particularly his uh, Jewish opponents, but also from what we call the antinomian, the lawless person who misunderstands grace, who says, we understand, Paul, that it's by grace that we're saved through faith. Doesn't that just mean that we can live any way we want to? That we can sin with impunity without repercussion because we have grace to cover us? And so Paul took chapter 6 to answer that question and to say in a nutshell, you've died to sin. You must understand what the Lord has done for you in your redemption. You've died to sin. That is to the penalty of sin and to its power. It no longer rules you and reigns over you. Therefore, how would you live any longer in it? How would you serve sin any longer if you've been released from its grips? No, sin no longer dominates you. Actually, you were called to walk in newness of life. Holiness is now your new charter in Christ. So, the answer to that question of the lawless person is, grace is never a license to sin. And Paul took great pains to explain that to us in chapter 6. Then he addresses the Jewish legalist in chapter 7 who says, effectively, Paul, it seems like you're setting aside the role of the law. The law is good. It was given to Moses for the people of God. How can you be setting it aside by teaching that salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone? That the law was something that came in afterward, on the side, as he said in Romans 5.20, that the offense might abound. It seems like the law has a, an evil purpose. It, it just stirs up sin. Is that what you're saying, Paul? So he took time in chapter 7 to deal with that question and to show us the law has no power to save, but it has great power to expose our need of salvation. Now Paul in chapter 8 is linking us back to his thought at the end of chapter 5. He's back on the theme of justification, and we know that because he uses a word that relates to this legal courtroom language, which is condemnation, condemnation. And the last time we saw him use that word condemnation was in chapter 5. Take a look at verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. In this portion of chapter 5, he's talking about Adam as a federal head, a representative for all people, all natural people, and that it was through Adam's one offense, his disobedience of God, that sin entered the world of mankind and death spread to all men in Adam at that point in the garden. But through Jesus Christ, the gift of grace and the gift of his own righteousness will reign in life, will come to us by his grace his justification, so that we are no longer condemned anymore. Look at verse 18. He says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, that's Adam's, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So, Paul is intentionally pitting justification against condemnation or condemnation against justification. They are opposites. That's his point. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. It's a legal sentence of damnation over the heads of all men in the courtroom of God. It's God's wrath that abides on all of us by nature. That's what condemnation describes. So, firstly, Paul is reconnecting us with the end of chapter 5 and continuing his discourse about justification in chapter 8, which is really the purpose of his whole letter. Secondly, he has just been telling us in chapter 7 how the law exposed his own sin. He gives us a personal testimony in his life of his conversion... And of his sanctification as the law is showing him more and more of his wretchedness in his flesh. His unredeemed humanity. That's what we mean when we talk about flesh. The part of his existence that is thoroughly tainted by sin. Paul was clear in verses 14 to 25 that he has new desires. New desires for holiness. For honoring God. For loving his law. He sides with God. He agrees with God. He vindicates God. He delights in the law of God in his mind, in his inner man, his new man. But he hates his own sin that he sees in his flesh. He's frustrated that he cannot obey the law of God completely, 100%, which is really what he wants to do. He sees a war within himself between his fleshly members and his new mind. And he understands that that war is not just taking place on one front, but it's taking place on every front within himself. All his members, every component of his physical body and his non-physical body, his natural mind, his natural emotion, his natural will, are all in conflict with his new mind, which has been given him in Christ. In short, He sees his sin for what it is, and he feels condemned. He feels condemned. So the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is quickly reminding us on the heels of that proclamation that he is a wretched man and begs for deliverance. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Yes, the war within remains. Yes, it it will vex you. It will irritate you. It will bother you and grieve you to the day that you die. But, thank God it doesn't rule you anymore. Thank God sin is not your master anymore. and You don't have to obey its every call. And it will never ultimately destroy you. A great promise. No condemnation. And that really, loved ones, is the nature of the comfort. The nature of the comfort is there is no condemnation. God's wrath has been turned away from you. He is no longer against you. He is for you in Christ. There's a great quote about this transition from Romans chapter 7 into chapter 8 that Dr. Sproul um, gave. And I, I just want to read that here. He said this, Paul is telling his readers, in light of the foregoing reminder of their continuing sinfulness, that they must now recall their acceptance, their immunity, and security in Christ. And they must recognize that the presence of God's Spirit is delivering them from the impotence and frustration of life in the flesh, which we have portrayed in chapter 7. So that's really what's going on. Christians are the ones who know something of their own wretchedness because the Spirit of God through the Word of God, through the law, has exposed it to their hearts and to their minds. They see it, and they feel condemned by it. But that's because they're looking at themselves. Now we're called to look away from ourselves and to look to Christ and to remember this wonderful truth and to believe this wonderful truth that there's no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus I found it interesting that if you look at the Greek and the grammar for the way this is phrased, the word for no, as in no condemnation, is not the usual word for no that's used in the Greek. The word that's used is the word that means not even one, none, nobody or nothing. In other words, there is not even the least bit of condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? There's no sentence of damnation over our heads anymore, loved ones, in the courtroom of God. His wrath has been removed. His arrow of everlasting punishment that was aimed right at our heads has been averted away from us. His smiling face is all we have now upon us. Tremendous, comforting statement. No condemnation. And why is it so comforting, really? Because we have to understand that that was our position before Christ. We were under his condemnation and wrath. I mean, this letter started with God's wrath being revealed in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no such thing as an atheist. Everybody knows that God exists because God has put that knowledge in every man, and he's evidenced it by everything that's been created. He says, but because although they knew God... They knew God. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the issue. The nations of the world, this is spoken to the Gentiles in chapter 1, that's all of us who are not ethnic Jews, we were all under the wrath of God because although we knew God existed, we didn't honor him as God. We wanted him out of our life and out of our minds. Because of that, the wrath of God was upon us, and we were given over to what he calls a debased mind, a non-functioning spiritual mind, or spiritually non-functioning mind, which cannot think the thoughts of God, which cannot understand spiritual truth, which has no appreciation for the things of God. Then we get into Romans chapter 2, and we have the same discussion, but for the Jews, for the ethnic Jews. And they were just as guilty as the Gentiles. They, he starts chapter 2 by saying, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, that's aimed primarily at the Jews, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God when you're condemning others for the very things that you're doing, which God hates? No. No. The Jews were just as guilty as the Gentiles. In fact, he sums it up in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Are the Jews any better than the Gentiles? Are they better off in any way? Even though they have the privileges of the oracles of God, the law of God, circumcision, Abraham as their father, are they better off because of those privileges? And he says, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, that's Gentiles, that they are all under sin. And then in verses 10 through 18 of chapter 3, he gives a description of the thorough corruption of mankind from his head to the sole of his foot because he has no fear of God before his eyes. And then in verse 19, he says, For now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Who's under the law? And all the world may become guilty before God. All of us were. All the world is guilty before God in their natural state. Under the wrath of God, guilty for their sin, brought into the courtroom of God, and charged, justly, condemned. That was our position before Christ. Listen to how our Lord Jesus talks about condemnation when he discusses this with nicodemus in john chapter 3. John chapter 3, of course, we love verse 16 so often quoted. And see how verse 16 rolls into the following verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We, Jesus is saying, are condemned by default. He didn't come to the world to condemn the world because they were all condemned already. He came to rescue them from condemnation. And the evidence that they were condemned is, he came to his own and his own received him not. They rejected the prince of life, the light of the world. He says in verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, that's a reference to himself. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. The darkness hates the light because the light condemns it. They will not come to the light. Verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light, and his, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. It's only the children of light that come to the light, that their deeds would be exposed. So our default position is condemnation. And we learned also in Romans chapter 5 that it was Adam's sin that condemned us all at the garden. So not only are we condemned by default, we were condemned back in the garden of Eden in Adam when he sinned, not just when we came into this world in space and time ourselves, we were all condemned in him. That was Paul's point in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that's Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We all sinned at that point in time in Adam, in his loins. When he sinned, he tainted the fountain, so to speak, so that all his offspring to come from him would carry that tainting with them. We sin because we are sinners by nature. So we're born condemned. Our default position in life is condemnation. But thank God for the superabounding grace of God. Condemnation is not the end of the story. Just as Adam brought sin and death into the world and condemnation for all his people, so Christ brought righteousness and life and justification. To all his people. And this is really the second point. So first, the nature of the comfort is there's no condemnation. In other words, we're justified. The opposite. And secondly, the recipients of the comfort. Who are the recipients of this comfort? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ are the recipients of this tremendous comfort. What does Paul mean by in Christ? Brethren, this is a very significant phrase. This is something we've talked about in the past, but if you look in the New Testament, the primary designation for the Christian is not the word Christian. That that word is used only three times. The primary designation for the Christian is this phrase, in Christ. It's used over 140 times. This is what it means to be identified with Jesus Christ Christ. To be in Christ means to be united to Him. It means to be joined to Him. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 6. A lot of this is review, but this is important review. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, this is referring to Jesus' death. United. That means planted together with. Or... These are agricultural terms, grafted together with. That's the sense in which we've been united or joined to Christ. And the Lord Jesus illustrates this for us in John 15 when he says at the beginning of John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch, now notice, in me, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He lifts up, literally, the idea is to lift up, up, cut away the dead branches and take them away to judgment, to burn them. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So here we have a picture of vine and branches that are joined together. They're one. They're in unity with each other. The life of the vine is what supplies the life to the branches so that they can be fruitful. That's the sense in which we are in Christ. That's the idea. Joined to him, planted with him, grafted into him. There's another wonderful illustration of this that we just looked at yesterday at Joel and Emily's wedding in Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to this in Ephesians 5 verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That's a description of the church. We are united to Christ so intimately that we share in His body the same flesh and same bones. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Joined is the word for glued, glued to. Christ in leaving the courts of heaven, came to join himself to his wife through his redemptive work, to glue himself to her, to wed her to himself. That's the sense in which we are in Christ. It's a permanent, indissoluble bond. And the question is, how is it that anyone ever comes to be united with Christ? How does this work happen? And Paul answers this in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. He says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. How is it that we were united with Christ into his body? By one spirit. By the spirit of God. By the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has sovereignly grafted us into the body of Christ. So, to be in Christ means to be united to him by the Holy Spirit as the work of God. That's very important to understand. Nowhere does the work of man enter into that equation. In fact, Paul is going to give the reason that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ in verse 2 of Romans 8, where he says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, Lord willing, we're going to talk next time about what that means in more detail, but suffice it to say for right now that the reason we're not condemned is because the Spirit of life, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. It's the work of the Spirit that has done something so that we're not condemned anymore. He doesn't point to our work anywhere in there. It's the work of the Spirit that sets us free. You might say, well, what about our faith? I mean, don't we have to believe in order to be united to Christ? That's a pretty foundational teaching in Christianity. And it is. Chapter 3 of Romans, verse 22, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith to all who believe. Romans 3, 26 says that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is always a part of the equation. But the scripture also says, For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. By his grace. Undeserved favor through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the question is, which is it? Is it the grace of God? Or is it our faith that unites us to Christ? They're both involved in our salvation. They're both involved, and I want you to see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul really lays this out for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I want you to look at this with me. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the question is, where is the emphasis in, this, in these verses? It's on the grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. If you have been a recipient of the grace of God, which is to say God has, in his own goodness, in his own kindness and compassion, applied his grace to you, loved you with his everlasting love, through no merit of your own. If he's done that, he's given you the gift of faith to believe him because it's not of ourselves if if faith were of us if we had the faith to exercise to be united to Christ we'd have some cause to boast and the lord will have no one to boast in his presence he says that here not of works lest anyone should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which god has prepared beforehand before what? Before anything was made, that we should walk in them. This is the right order we have to understand, loved ones. The grace of God is always the first mover. We are respondents to the grace of God with the faith that he's given us to exercise that faith back toward him in trust, to hear his voice and to believe it. such an amazing truth that even the faith that we have to believe in Christ is not the work of men but is the work of God. And you say, well, where do you see that? Well, there's several places but let me just give you this one. In John chapter 6, this is when Jesus has just fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two little fish, multiplied it for these 5,000 men plus women and children. There's so much left over (laughs) That they take up 12 baskets full of the fragments. Clearly, a, a miracle of massive proportions. The Lord is feeding this crowd, and people are following him because he's feeding them physical food. He's filling their bellies. And Jesus says in verse 27 of John 6: Do not labor for the food which perishes. Don't labor for this food that I'm giving you now. This food ultimately is going to leave you hungry, it's not going to satisfy you ultimately. But labor for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Here's the big question. What can we do to work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Loved ones, if you can believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that's the work of God manifest in your heart. Praise Him for it. You would not be able to believe were it not for the work of God active in you. So it is grace and it is faith working in tandem, but grace is always the first mover. So to be united to Christ is to be united to Him by the Holy Spirit Uniquely the work of God, all a result of His grace. Why is it that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ? Why? We know that our condemnation was the result of our sin. We know that Adam, as our first father, corrupted us, all of us as a race, as as a humanity. And because of that, we're born sinners. And then because of that, we sin and we just heap up God's wrath against us more and more inside his treasury of wrath. But when we're sovereignly joined to the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, we become partakers of him. And I want you to see this again in Romans chapter 6, so let's come back to Romans. We covered a lot of wonderful territory, but we need to review this as well because it all carries forward into chapter 8. Look at Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, that word is the word immersed. This is just another description of united to Christ. As many of us as were immersed into Christ, Jesus, were immersed into his death. You see, when we were joined with Christ supernaturally, sovereignly by the work of the Spirit of God, we become partakers of the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and he's going to say the resurrection of Christ. We share in his experience, in the mind of God. And so what happens here is he dies and we die with him. He dies to sin once for all time, like he says in verse 10. He died to sin once for all, that the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now notice, likewise you, verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because you're united to him. When he died to sin, you died to sin, the reign of sin no longer has power over you. It no longer had power over him. He went to the grave, but he rose victorious from the grave by the power of the Father. Death no longer has a claim on Christ, and it does not have a claim on us either, because we're united to him. Astounding truth. We are partakers of his death and his life. When he died, loved ones, something happened happened that we have to remember. There was an exchange that took place. The exchange Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For he, referring to God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That was the great exchange that took place at the cross. When we died with him, all of our sins were placed on him and punished fully in him by God the Father. And all of Jesus' accrued righteousness that he earned through a life of perfect obedience to the Father was placed on us, so that now we are seen as fully justified, not guilty. In fact, blessed, accepted, comforted by the Lord because of his work for us in Christ. Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 53, verse 5, but he, referring to this Messiah to come, the Lord Jesus, Was wounded for our transgressions, for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. What was required for us to have peace with God was that our sin be taken away, that it be punished fully, and it was punished fully in Him, and by His stripes we are healed. It's the same idea the great exchange that took place at the cross. That's why we are not condemned because of our union with Christ. We're in Him. We've died to sin. We have His righteousness. We're accepted and to be comforted by God for that wonderful gospel truth. Now, there are some teachers who teach that we can lose our no condemnation status because they believe that we can lose our salvation, we can lose the faith or stop believing and just walk away from the faith, that we can be justified one minute and condemned at a later date depending on our performance. And the question is, is that true? Scripturally, is that true? As we're learning these truths of God and His sovereignty, this doctrine in Romans 8, 1 directly refutes that heretical teaching that we can lose our salvation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Loved ones, if you understand that you didn't put yourself into Christ, that it was the Holy Spirit of God who grafted you into Him and joined you to Him permanently in a wedding which will last for all eternity, then you cannot take yourself out of Christ. You are in Him by grace. It's an indissoluble union. And thank God, right? Because if we could take ourselves out of Christ, each and every one of us would. There would be no possibility of salvation. And we would effectively be in the same position as every other man-centered, false religion in this world. No salvation and no possibility for assurance because of the faulty work of man, which wavers up and down, up and down, up and down, and which is all condemned by God anyway. Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed. That's a statement of fact and permanence. Not that he puts a band-aid on us and hopes that the bleeding stops and that one day we might be healed. No, you are healed in this sense. His righteous blood has atoned for you. It's covered all your sin effectively, once and for all. That means even your future sins that you haven't even committed yet are all paid for in Christ. Hallelujah! What a glorious truth. Paul says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're not the same person that you used to be, is the message. You're new in Christ, entirely new. That's your healing that Isaiah was talking about. You've been born again in New Testament language. You've been washed clean. And your nature has changed. You're now a good tree able to make good fruit, whereas before you were a bad tree only able to make bad fruit. Is it possible for someone to become unborn once they're born? Is it possible for a a bad tree to make good fruit and vice versa? Jesus said it this way in John 5, John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That verse has been misconstrued along with many others in a, to be taken in a prescriptive way rather than in a descriptive way. It's read as, if you believe on the Son, then you will be given eternal life. But the way this is written is, because you have eternal life, you believe. The order matters. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. Why can the Lord Jesus make such a confident statement that we will never come into judgment, that our condemnation is past, never to come up again, if it's our belief that ultimately procures our eternal life. If we stop believing, we lose our eternal life. That's the whole heretical doctrine. They reverse the order. They put too much focus on the man and his work, and they don't see the glorious work of God through Christ that's happening in us, a work of permanence, that will carry us to the end. This, loved ones, is the basis of the perseverance of the saints. That everyone who has trusted in Christ has done so because of the work of the Spirit of God in their life first, and He will bring them to the end because it's His work. The work of God never fails. Do you see how comforting this doctrine of um, being in Christ really is? Very comforting. God has made Jesus to be our all. He is our wisdom, He is our righteousness, He is our sanctification, and He is our glorification. All because we are in Christ. Every spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ, who is the source of all spiritual blessing. This is our great comfort. No condemnation. I want us to see this looking forward from Isaiah's perspective about 700 years before the Lord Jesus ever came. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40 with me. This is our call to worship this morning. And this is a text that, or a prophecy, that Isaiah gave really over a hundred years, about a a century and a half before Judah was exiled into Babylon, before God punished Judah the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, and carried them away captive to Babylon. Isaiah prophesies 150 years before they're taken out. And in chapter 40, he's actually prophesying about their return back into the promised land 70 years after they've been in exile. So if you can kind of get this straight in your mind, he's looking forward 150 years to a time when they will be exiled, and then even 70 years beyond that to when they're going to be brought back into the land. And he says this, Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What is it that Isaiah is talking about here? There is a Near-term fulfillment of what Isaiah is speaking about. And and that's what I just mentioned. That Israel is going to, as a nation, come back into the promised land after their exile into Babylon. He says, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Why? Because her warfare is ended. What warfare? God was at war with his people for their sin. He has punished them. In fact, he says... She, referring to Jerusalem, has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the sense of that is not two times the amount, but an exact matching for her sins. In other words, her sins have been punished in full, and so now God is able to bring them back into their own land. But as often is the case with prophecy, it has multiple horizons of fulfillment, there's a near-term fulfillment. There's also farther-term fulfillments, as if you were standing uh, on a horizon looking out at many mountains, or looking out on the horizon, I should say. All of those mountains that, which are spaced out appear to be as one peak or one mountain in the distance, but as you get closer, you see the separation of the mountains. That compression and expansion is what happens in prophecy And so, look at verse 3, and we know this is familiar territory. It should sound familiar from the New Testament. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who's that being talked about? That's John the Baptist. That's Matthew chapter 3. This forerunner of the Messiah who prepares the way of the Lord. He's out in the wilderness of Judea, and he's crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord, repent, and be ready for the coming of the King, the Lord Jesus, who came in his day. So, this prophecy of comfort my people, comfort my people, is not just for ethnic Israel coming back from Babylon into their own land. This is also a prophecy that speaks of Messiah coming. And Messiah is going to deliver his people from the spiritual exile of their lands, and bring them back into the promised land, which is himself. He is going to comfort his people because her warfare is ended. God's wrath has been poured out, how? On the Son. She, Israel, she, Jerusalem, has received from the Lord's hand an appropriate measure for all her sins. Do you see why it's so important we understand that Jesus is the true Israel? He was the one who received the punishment of the Lord for his people. So she can be pardoned. This is a wonderful prophecy looking forward to our day that is being fulfilled now as people are coming to Christ by the power of the Spirit, being united with Christ. We are being comforted by the Lord. Why is this important? Because we feel condemned as we see our sin, as we grow in grace we, we get overwhelmed. The Lord says, remember my promise. Christ has paid it all for you. Remember him. Look to him and be comforted. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. Be comforted. Now come to chapter 61. And Chapter 61 was our corporate reading this morning. <laughs> Just the first couple of verses of chapter 61 to start. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now, who is speaking here? This, we know, is the Lord Jesus because in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is just beginning his ministry in Galilee, he goes to the temple. They hand him the scroll from Isaiah. And he opens it to chapter 61, or this portion. And he reads from the scroll these verses. He says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, that he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he stops. He doesn't read, And the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because in his first advent, when he came, He came to bring salvation to God's people. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. This is the quote-unquote day of salvation. Not a 24-hour period, but a stretch of time when grace has been opened. People may come to Christ and be saved. That window is going to close at some point when he comes back in his second advent. And it's in that day that the vengeance of God will be performed. But now is the day of salvation, the acceptable year of the Lord. And look what he says at the end of verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. Christ's purpose in coming was to save his people from their sins that they would be comforted even though they're mourning over their own sin. Their eyes have been opened to see their sinfulness by the Spirit of God and he is comforting us. A wonderful Paradox that happens at the same time. Grief and comfort and a feeling of condemnation. And yet, remember the promise. You're not condemned. You're not condemned. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. Strong trees. Firmly planted The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Loved ones, this is not just for ethnic Israel. This is for the people of God, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. Those who are spiritual children of Abraham, who believe God with the faith that we've been given by God. You are a planting of the Lord. You may feel condemned, but you are strongly planted by him. You will endure. You will not be knocked over in the judgment to come. In verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What is that except a description of justification? When you trust in Christ, you've been covered by his righteousness. Your sins are not seen anymore. All that's seen by God is the righteousness of Jesus on you. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That's in you and in me. That's sanctification. The Lord is going to cause righteousness, holiness of life, and praise to come forth from his people just as the herb is coming forth from the earth In the same way, God's people will spring forth from the earth and praise him and grow into trees that produce good fruit for him. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 by Jesus himself in Isaiah 61. He is the Lord anointed by the Spirit to deliver the captives those who are bound by sin, and to comfort us because we are reminded we are not guilty anymore. I just want you to hear one more vivid illustration of this comfort because that is our theme for today. The comfort that God has for his people, Jerusalem, for you, church. Isaiah 66, 12 and 13, and I'm going to read this from the Legacy Standard Bible He says, For thus says Yahweh the Lord Behold, I stretch out peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed. You will be carried on the hip and played with on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. God is Father. Eternal Father, but He comforts like a mother with tenderness and compassion, loving kindness, like a baby with its mother. The nature of the comfort is no condemnation. The recipients of the comfort, all of us who are in Christ, who have been grafted into Him by the work of the Spirit of God. Alone. Forever. (laughs) And the character of the comforted? The character of the comforted is the third point here. How do you know that you're in Christ? Well, we're going to get into this more as we get into verse 4 because you may have noticed in my Bible, which is the New King James, the phrase... At the end of Romans 8, 1, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, is not there in the ESV or the NASB. It's uh, at the end of verse 4. Um, so that may just be a, a copyist insertion into the end of verse 1, but really it is appropriate to place it at the end of verse 1 and at the end of verse 4, so there's nothing wrong with having it there. Um, The sense is the same, and that's what we really need to understand. And it answers this question, how do you know that you're in Christ? Here's the answer. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Your walk evidences whether you're in Christ or out of Christ. Not your profession, what you say, but your life. Your walk in Scripture is just another way of saying your general pattern of life, how you live. It's a general term. It means what your regular habits are. And if your regular habit is to walk according to the flesh, again, from chapter 7, we we looked at the flesh quite a bit. That means to walk as a natural person, a non-spirit-filled person, a person who is in the realm of the flesh, the earth alone. If you walk according to the flesh, the Scripture says you're still in death. The carnally minded person is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So Paul is clear. There's a contrast, a 180 degree difference between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. If you walk, again, your pattern of life is according to the natural man, you're not saved. That's what he's saying. It's not possible, in other words, for a Christian to walk according to the flesh because, again, walk is your general pattern of life. And people get confused on this because they say, well, if I look at my sin at a particular moment in time, it seems like I am walking according to the flesh. And I think the analogy that helps to keep this straight is, Picture yourself walking on a road, on a path. Can you fall while you walk on that path? Yes, you can. That's our sin. We stumble and we fall, but the Lord picks us up and we keep walking in that path. You're not walking in another path. The other path is the path of wickedness. That's not the path of the Christian. The path of the Christian, his pattern of life, is holiness. Not perfection, but holiness And repentance when we fail, when we sin. We're walking in the path of righteousness. We are walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, again, your walk evidences whether you are in Christ or out of Christ. Not your profession. We have a profession, and that's important. But it has to be backed up with a life of obedience to the Lord. And if it's not, the profession is not real. That's his point. We're going to do more, a lot more on this next time, but just for now, again, remember the nature of the comfort, no condemnation. The recipients, those who are in Christ, the character of the comfort, the comforted, are those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And there's just one final thing, and this may be obvious to you, but this is something that emerged to me as I was studying this week. Feelings are not always trustworthy, are they? Feelings are not a compass that points us north. They're not to be trusted as the final authority. Why do I say that? Because when we were condemned, we didn't feel condemned like we did after the law came to us and the Lord opened our heart to see our sinfulness. We didn't feel condemned. And conversely, now that we're in Christ and we see our sin for what it is, we often feel condemned, don't we? But we're not condemned. So feelings can be a liar. The Word of God never lies. His message is, trust the Word, not your feelings, as the primary source of truth and reliability. Trust the Lord encourage yourself in the Lord and in these wonderful promises which are yours in Christ and can never be removed. My prayer this morning is that the people of God would be truly comforted as we set our minds on him, on these truths, and as we meditate on it, on these truths more and more every day. May the Lord help us to know his comfort. Amen. Father, We give you thanks for this morning and for this time in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would apply these truths to our hearts and that you would change us forevermore, that we would remember the faithfulness of our God, even when we, and especially when we are unfaithful. Lord, we thank you that we are in the hand of Christ and that Christ being in union with the Father, we are also in the hand of the Father and cannot be plucked out or snatched out by anyone Our salvation is secure. We've been brought in by the work of the Spirit. We will be carried to glory by the work of the Spirit. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your gracious work of redemption to us sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.